Tooth and Claw, Volume 1, Issue 4, Lincoln, England, Present Day. Drake had only just joined Ross on the pavement outside the bar when the car pulled up, gleaming wet in the rain and bounced pinks of the rich signage. Everything all right? Ross asked. Yes. Went quite well, actually. He's a brute, Drake said, looking absently up at the sky, his hand resting on the door handle. Enough, Ross barked, grasping Drake's arm firmly. Twice in one night is too much. What happened in there? What happened earlier? And what were you going to tell me? He said, each question thrusting through the patter of rain and the gritty swoosh of passing cars. Drake turned and looked at him carefully, then at his arm, tightly held in Ross's hand, then back up again. He fixed Ross with a questioning gaze, the street lamps and headlights dancing in his eyes with a joyous fervency. Ross slowly released his grip, still glaring. Drake opened the passenger door and leant inside. He barked an order, shut the door. The car yanked itself over the road with a screech of tyres and came to a stop a few yards away. Drake motioned to a bus shelter on the opposite side of the road from the bar. They dashed over to the empty bench. The rain was lessening, but the air was still soaked through and the surfaces of the city were now sodden. The streets felt somehow porous, letting the still gusting wind race through it like a mesh of concrete. So, three questions, wasn't it? What happened in there? What happened at Sinsil Bank? And what was I going to tell you? All reasonable, Ross replied curtly, shaking the water from his short red hair with his hand. Drake stretched his legs out and eased back as much as possible on the narrow green plastic of the bench, folding his hands back to support his head as he reclined. They're all connected, as I'm sure you've guessed, he smiled. I don't deal in guesswork, Ross glowered, the nonchalance of the man. Guesswork is an unknown quantity and those will get you killed. Three tonight alone. I know you rank me, but we've been partnered together. For my development, yes, but if this is your idea of a learning curve, I think it needs a risk assessment. Drake barely stifled a chuckle. Students don't get to decide if they can skip grades. He rolled his head side to side so his neck cracked loudly. I'm only half joking, Ross. You knew when you joined the organisation there'd be levels of access and responsibility, that there's a staggered progress through them. You've risen at quite a rate already. Not necessarily in terms of access, of course, but certainly in terms of responsibility. Out in the field after 18 months and then partnered with me. Not wanting to sound like a tosser, Drake smiled again. Whilst Humphrey certainly championed you, it's not without merit. You're the new golden boy. Humphrey does seem to have my back. It's kind of humbling, I guess. Definitely a good thing, Drake assured him. He's mainly interested in recruitment these days and research. I do miss him in the field sometimes. My point is that regardless of how much trust is put in you, how much faith, there are still gradings, timelines in place when it comes to how much is revealed to an agent, arbitrary though it may sometimes seem. Fine, Ross hurried, but surely not when we're out here, amongst them. You flaunt procedures so often and I'm always left hanging. Just now, Drake changed tack, Duckstone called you Yankee Boy. You didn't like it. No, I didn't, Ross shrugged his shoulders. He got my back up, I don't know why. Disgusting man. Absolutely. He could tell, you know. That's why he delighted so much in goading you. 
He'd have liked nothing more than for you to bite. That's why I stepped in. Ross was incredulous. I do have self-control, I know, Drake said gently. I wouldn't doubt it generally, but Ross, Clive is Duckstone Senior's biological son. These last words, spoken in a short snap, hung in the damp air and coagulated in front of Ross before truly sinking in. They're blood relatives, he asked with a hint of fear. Drake nodded solemnly. There's a host of other factors to consider when engaging in any kind of conflict with him. Physical, verbal, psychological, doesn't matter. It's not something you enter into lightly, and the authority associated with your profession is suddenly much more tenuous. Drake sat bolt upright, twisting on the bench to face Ross head on. The surface of his eyes flashed after each blink. Considering what happened at the station, I didn't want to risk a confrontation. Public spaces are normally off-limits, but that may be changing. Ross moved his tongue around in his mouth. He thought about that moment with Duckstone, that voice oozing out with the vapour, drawling around the vowels and splitting the consonants out with a snapping hiss. It made Ross's skin crawl, but with a clogged feeling like being dragged through thick mud. He'd wanted to smash his way out with a burst of violence, stopping that sickly orifice with his cloud of haze and slithering antagonism, stopping it with a closed fist. It felt like an age until Drake had intervened, an age trapped in a maddening fog that clung to his composure and suffocated it. Duckstone's eyes had a thin, wet glaze to them which hid a deeper pattern of colours and shades, gauzed fluctuation that danced and strained over the slimy film. His mouth was a fetid leer. It made sense now. Ross had fallen under some kind of spell and Drake had saved him. Then the other truth hit him. For Duckstone to even attempt such a provocation was worrying. It may have been as he'd said himself. He'd not dealt with the order before and perhaps wanted to test the boundaries. But the incident at the stadium suggested otherwise. If the Duckstones were thinking about an actual show of force, a genuine flare-up, things could escalate quickly. Maybe Ross had just escaped with his life. He eased himself back on the bench and let out a long breath. Okay. Fuck. That's a massive thanks I owe you then, Drake. Seriously. Drake smiled kindly. Anytime. But you see how quickly things can change. There's not always time to go through everything. In the bar, Clive turned up just as we were about to get into it. Back at the stadium, there wasn't time to explain what I was doing. Fine, Ross agreed. The stadium's the next one on the list. Drake furrowed his brow, his eyes darkening. He leant closer conspiratorially. This information is not given lightly, Eric. Ross flinched at the use of his Christian name. If Drake noticed, it didn't stop him. It relates to me, so I'll be clear. The Order has its own strict rules about conduct and punitive measures, especially with regards to information and intelligence. However, I'm telling you now, as a friend, if this goes any further than this bus stop, I apply my own punitive measures. Drake talked coldly now the wind shaking and rocking the plastic of the shelter with a squeaking tremor. Ross felt a pure honesty, an elemental sense of truth in Drake's words. It terrified him, but he was somehow not scared. I understand. Drake relaxed slightly. Good. In any other circumstance, I'd think it too soon, but I have a feeling things are going to move quickly. Along with Humphrey and a handful of others, you'll be the only one to have a real idea about me, Ross. I'm listening, Ross said quietly. 
Drake clicked his neck again and settled into the seat. The wind was still blowing against the shelter, but now it had curled round and into it, buffeting the air so Drake's words phased in and out as he began to speak. It felt like his voice was in Ross's head rather than outside. At the stadium, after I'd sent everyone out, I used the boulder that had crushed the victim's head to connect with Duckstone. Connect, Ross asked, squinting into an oncoming headlight. I can do certain things you might not consider normal. For instance, do you believe it's possible for a man to touch an object, an object used to commit an act of violence, and from that tactile contact garner some knowledge of what may have happened, or even what is going to happen, or where the aggressor may be found? Of course not. It's nonsense. No man could do that. Indeed, no man could. Yet I tell you in all honesty, that is what I did. Ross looked at Drake calmly. Such a strange sensation. He didn't believe that Drake had done anything outlandish. And yet he believed what Drake said. The words were true, but the act simply wasn't possible. Ross felt a temporal slip, a disconnect from the normal plane of reality. He looked away from Drake and tried to shake off a feeling, something like vertigo. A large black transit van pulled up outside the Ritz opposite. A tall man in a shell suit jumped out and dashed through the rain into the bar. A moment later, Duckstone Jr. and his men poured out into the street. Ross snapped back into real time. Drake was looking at the van with interest. He turned to Ross with a smile. I know, his eyes glinting. Let's move. Howard's doze was rudely cut short as they both jumped into the car. Follow that transit, Drake pointed at the van pulling away from the bar and heading south. Howard gunned the engine. Sydney, Australia, 15 years earlier. A few months passed. Robert had grown closer to Lian Hua and her grandfather. A couple of days had seen him fit enough to get out of bed. A few minutes had seen him charm his boss into not firing for a week off grid. Work quickly became pretty much a distraction to him anyway, as he spent all his free time at the takeaway. He'd help out in the kitchen and the storeroom, talking more and more with Lian Hua, gradually blunting her grandfather's natural thorniness. The girl was reticent to reveal much of herself, and at first maintained her concern that Robert returned so often to Chinatown. When she realised he was visiting despite her warnings, she reluctantly welcomed his presence. Robert felt compelled to return. When he was well enough to get out of bed and had no more need of potions, he'd confronted them both about his recovery. His memory of the car park and his injuries had returned, and he couldn't believe that traditional Chinese medicine alone could have saved him. With fortunately diminishing revulsion, he still remembered the depth of the penetration of the blades and his guts bubbling at the rupture of his skin as he dragged himself into the alley. Yet the two scars on his belly were already fading, the alarming red softening to a bruised purple brown and the tenderness drying to an ember that only glowed if he twisted the wrong way, though one of them was healing more slowly than the other. They both refused to elaborate and had begged then, in the case of Lin Hua's grandfather, ordered him to leave and not return. Robert did so, but came back the very next day after work and sat on a chair by the counter. 
absently staring at them as they served the numerous customers who came and went. By the time it came to closing, and after much beseeching and shouting, Lianhua and her grandfather admitted him back into the store. She'd initially tried to explain it by referring to her grandfather's expertise with traditional medicine and healing arts, purporting that she didn't know the specifics herself and that his English wasn't good enough to translate. Robert wouldn't have thought it, though. He demanded an explanation for the dreams he'd had whilst flitting in and out of consciousness and for how he'd healed so quickly. All the while, Lianhua's grandfather sat on a large drum of oil, slowly puffing away on a long, thin pipe, his eyes firmly fixed on Robert. Eventually, Lianhua turned in defeat to her grandfather and pleaded with him in Cantonese. He sighed deeply and raised himself to his feet. Come here, young man, he beckoned Robert calmly. Robert looked at him as he slowly approached. The old man was smiling benignly at him through little puffs of pipe smoke that jumped up and dissipated around his weathered face. The storeroom felt incrementally warmer as though swimming through different currents. Robert stopped just in front of the old man towering above him but surprised to find himself still engulfed by his thickness. The old man was far from wizened, though he stooped slightly he was broad and his shoulders were packed tightly with old but solid muscle. His arms had a tapered heft to them that flexed with a coiled power into taut bulges with even the slightest movement. You suffered fatal injuries, Robert. I know, Robert said heavily, the pipe smoke shuddering up, out and away from his face under the force of his breath. It's coming back to me, more and more, what happened in the car park. I want to know how you healed me so effectively. The old man stood up slowly. With a thoughtful nod, he raised his hands and placed them on Robert's shoulders. Let me see, the old man said quietly, closing his eyes. He straightened his back and lowered his hips, bending at the knees. Robert felt a raw power in the old man's hands as they gently gripped him. A warm feeling of descent flooded his limbs. He instinctively closed his eyes. The old man was breathing in and out as Robert eased into the rhythm as their bodies began to gently pulse in unison. Robert's head began to feel lighter, even though the room seemed to close in around him with a cushioning warmth. Flickers of sound danced at the very edges of audibility, vague scrapings and crackling noises like dry autumn leaves brushed over whispering grasses. The old man slowly ran his hands down Robert's shoulders and across his arms. The sounds now bristled into tiny electrical impulses that followed the gradual sweep of the old man's hands. They widened and articulated in an increased form. Was it the old man muttering under his breath? As Robert wondered, the old man took his right hand from where it had come to rest around Robert's wrist and placed it firmly onto the solar plexus. Robert felt a surging heat ripple into his chest cavity and a rush of sharp light into his skull, as if the room had been sucked into a vortex located in the middle of his forehead. He crushed his eyes tighter together to blank it out, but to no avail. The pressure made his head feel ready to burst into a rupture of a thousand pieces. He heard the old man shout something. The pressure exploded through the rest of his body, shunting the heat in his torso down through his legs into the ground. He felt himself thrust backwards. The blinding suffusion immediately started to ebb. 
Robert opened his eyes to find himself a good couple of feet further back from the old man, who was again perched on the old oil drum, arms folded, pipe in mouth, staring back at Robert with a knowing look. What the hell was that? Robert shivered angrily, the last of the feeling evaporating off the surface of his skin, becoming a physical amnesia. The old man exhaled a deep draught of smoke. It has worked, he said, and so it must be. A moment passed. The old man frowned and dropped his shoulders slightly in the haze. He looked up slowly at Robert then and seemed to smile. So, young man, he chirped suddenly, jumping easily to his feet and pointing the end of his pipe at Robert. I will make you a deal. A deal? You will work for me unpaid. I know you have another job, but you will come here in the evenings and at weekends. There is plenty of preparation work to be done in the kitchen and plenty of heavy things to be lifted in the storeroom. The old man gestured around him with his pipe at the crates of durian and mango piled against the wall, his smile broadening. I am getting no younger, and Lian Hua would be grateful for the assistance, I'm sure. It will probably endear you to her even more, he said with a high glee. Grandfather, Lian Hua scolded. Robert turned in time to catch the embarrassment flushing her eyes with jet. He smiled. The old man laughed heartily. And only when I am happy that you are ready will I tell you everything. He leaned forward and up to Robert, raising an eyebrow over a dark, questing eye. How does that sound, Robert Drake? Robert looked at him, remembering the feel of the old man's hand on his chest and aware always of Lianhua's presence. What did ready mean? The old man had an enticing danger. It was difficult to refuse. I don't really have much of a choice, do I? Not if you want to know, the eyebrow crooked higher. The old man was relishing this. Robert nodded. Very well. Excellent. He clapped his hands together and placed them briefly on Robert's shoulders again. My name is Qian Tang, and this, he spun away, is my takeaway. The best in Chinatown. You follow my instruction and you will quickly learn much, and not just about dim sum. He began to walk amongst the shelves, pointing out different ingredients and sauces, almost talking to himself. Lin Hua came to Robert and gently touched his forearm. He felt his skin rise to meet hers. I am sorry everything is so vague, Robert, she said warmly. I know it sounds strange, but it is not for me to explain, and Grandfather, her voice tailed off, is a mysterious fellow. I get it. Well, I don't get it, but I get what you mean. I trust you, Lianhua. I just hope you trust me. She looked seriously at him, then at Qian Tang, still rustling through various sacks and packets. I do, but it is Grandfather whose trust you must earn. She gave his arm a gentle squeeze. I still think it not safe for you to return, but if you must, then please listen to him, no matter how odd things may sound. Robert gave a reassuring smile. He hoped it masked his apprehension. I will. Written and recorded by James Fisher. Edited and read by Andy Bennett. Music by Aquifer.